Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. The amazing spider talk, the amazing spider talk, come swing the air, sit back and prepare for the amazing spider. Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, the founder of the Chase and Amazing blog, author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, but Dan, the annuals do not count. Well, thanks everybody for joining us for our 12th and not final episode of the third season of the all new Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yeah, Dan, this this season of Amazing Spider Talk is kind of like one of those Marvel Netflix series where like, you know, just when you think it should be about done, we're like, no, 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 there's one more episode, we promise, and it's going to be totally relevant, we promise. <laughs> Absolutely. So 13 episodes in this season. Yeah, this is not the last one. On that note, if you do want to learn everything that we know about Spidey, uh, why not subscribe to our show starting back with the very first season, which I believe was also 13 episodes of Memory Serves. It may have been. I, I, I can't remember at this point. But if you enjoy our show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or your podcast player of choice, we would love to have you along. Hit that subscribe button and follow us for our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future. Just head on over to AmazingSpiderTalk.com for all the details about where to subscribe. In this third season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk, we've been following our favorite web slinger through the transition into the Bronze Age, a time period that is known for its darker tone and sometimes outlandish stories. But this was also a time period of huge growth for the character in terms of representation outside of comics and television. In the late 70s, Spider-Man exploded into the merchandising world in a way never seen before as Marvel was keen to continue to push their new figurehead character into the hands of every child on Earth. Well, guys, join us for a dive into the world of Spider-Man merchandising. That means action figures, records, television commercials, cameras, playsets, web shooters, and even a helicopter. Is it the Thanos copter, Dan? <laughs> no, it's the spider copter because that's a thing. There's like the spider buggy and the spider bike. We'll get into it. And if you enjoy this podcast and want to help us to continue while getting amazing bonus content and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go to our show notes and check out our Patreon page and consider joining our team. To that point, we want to issue a special thanks to Michael Manival. <laughs> Carolina Ortez Mavliov and Jorge Luis Castillo for becoming new patrons and supporting the show's existence. All right, Mark. Well, prepare your blanket for it. Draw windows on your cardboard boxes and ready your record player. It's playtime. <laughs>
right, Dan. So as our intro insinuated, we're going to be doing a quick little run through through all of the toys and merchandise of Spider-Man from the 1970s. I mean, this was really the era where Spider-Man truly exploded onto the scene in terms of merchandising. I mean, we touched on this in season two when we had Rob Bruce on about some of the first Spider-Man toys. But I mean, it's like a whole new ball game here during the Bronze Age era, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there probably was a ball game Spider-Man. I mean, they just produced his stuff. Like, they licensed the character to hell in the 70s. I mean, it was on everything. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was probably Spider-Man versus the wall if it was a ball game. So we we have that to look forward to. (laughs) And in a typical kind of fashion and as how this always seems to go with Spider-Man and our show here, I mean, like, well, yes, he was being merchandising, merchandised everywhere. There are certain kind of like flagship moments of memorabilia and toys here that were a, a bigger reflection on what was going on in the toy business and comic book business at the time. And I, I think that the best way to kind of start about that is to talk about probably like one of the biggest game changers, not just for Spider-Man merchandise, but just comic book merchandise in general. And that's the Mego action figure line, right? I mean, like, you know, we got some some vintage commercials here. Why don't we listen to them first? Pretend you're Spider-Man. Your mission, to rescue your friend high above. A job for your Spider-Man web shooter. Flip your secret wristband, take aim, and down slides your man to safety. But wait, there go the bad guys. Reload, take aim, shoot, zap, got him, bring him in. The Spider-Man the Incredible Hulk meets Spider-Man. Each figure a foot tall and fully posable. All you need is a piece of string, and here comes Spider-Man. So those are really great. If you don't know what Amigo action figure is, Mark, like, can you describe what these toys were? These were basically the first true superhero-centric action figures. And uh, they were about 8 inches tall. There were actually also like 12-inch versions of them. Actually, Mego currently is enjoying a renaissance. Like they're they, they're they're re re they're coming back again, and of course, like they're trying to get all these like superhero characters involved as part of it. But going back to the original line, well, Mego itself started in the 1950s, but they started to they they got the license for DC and Marvel superheroes in the early 1970s, which by itself is kind of wacky because like. After the Mego line, like the way it went was like one, you know, one toy company would get DC, the other would get Marvel, someone else would get Ninja Turtles, you know what I mean? Like no one, no one had a, a monopoly on all of them. And Mego was able to get the license for all of these characters. So in 1971, they debuted what was known as the world's greatest superhero line. One of their big initial characters was the Action Jackson figure. What they basically did was they took the Action Jackson figure and gave it like basically made interchangeable heads and costumes with different superhero costumes. So like you were taking your Action Jackson figure and like unscrewing the head and putting like Spider-Man's head with his costume on him, which is kind of wild. It's important (laughs) to note that these are not like figurines per se. They're not like little like plastic 
toys like you might think of action figures today. They had like a plastic head, right? That's the interchangeable head you were just talking about. But the body was like a felt, like it was like a soft kind of like character in, in a way. I mean, that's the initial run of these characters. And then by 1972, it wasn't meant to be interchangeable anymore. Like they were making distinct figures, although they still weren't true figurines like what you were describing. Like they were still kind of like these felt characters, but they got the Marvel line around 1972. So they had Spider-Man and then it was Captain America and then also Tarzan, which was not a Marvel character, but like it was part of that series of characters. And once... Spider-Man debuted, he has the unique distinction as being the only Marvel character to appear in every iteration of the Mego line from 1972 to 1982 when they were producing these figures. So, you know, once again, Spider-Man rules the world, which we, we all know. And if you go to like a modern convention today, you can find these pretty regularly. I mean, maybe not the Spider-Man one. Like uh, I, I own one of the lizard, you know, I bought it in its original box and they're these kind of big, like kind of hefty boxes with the big names on the side and you know they appeared in these box versions but they also kind of appeared in ones with like a mounted plastic bubble on it and so they were kind of like the first ever blister pack of like figurines you know like uh just an er very early version of what we kind of consider modern action figures as you just noted dan by 1974 kind of the next line of marvel characters included in addition to spider-man he had some villains to fight so we had the lizard and green goblin toys quick fact about that lizard toy you have which i find to be amusing was Mego would later use the head of the lizard as part of its gorn star trek figure that makes a lot of sense yeah (laughs) so you know you gotta you gotta just kind of repurpose what you got there right (laughs) yeah i want that green goblin one i think it's really cool and he comes with a purse i believe so you know or a man purse i guess you would call it there you go thank you christos gage for the man purse joke again over the years you know over the course of the 70s like migo would kind of move production plants around and as a result like the spider-man figure like each iteration of him would kind of have some subtle changes like with the costume like the 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 lines the webbing things like that you know it kind of just reflects it's kind of like the 67 animated series sometimes the costume looked complete maybe a little sometimes a little less so and then in 1974 these are considered like some of the rarest of the migo figures there was the alter ego line Instead of doing the superhero versions, they actually did like the alter egos, including a Peter Parker figure. There was also like Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson. You don't you don't know one of these, do you, Dan? Because I no. think you'd be sitting on a gold mine if you did. <laughs> I've never seen these before. Like uh, I was surprised when you told me that these existed. It's like Peter, and he's got like I think he's got his like a little sweater vest and stuff like that. He's got his daily bugle camera. I mean, it's a really attractive looking figure. I have to imagine if someone has one and it's in good condition, they're probably sitting on a pretty penny there, which is kind of cool. They would continue to do other variations with this line, so they developed in 1975 an all plastic three and a half inch posable comic action heroes, which is like exactly what you know of today. It's like action figures, you know, the three and a half inch tinier, smaller characters. And then he would create, like you mentioned earlier, a much bigger one, a 12 inch figure. And then in 1976, they even introduced the amazing spider car, which we've already talked about on the show here in a whole other episode about odds and ends, the spider mobile. Like, you know, I, I don't think this is the one that officially made Jerry Conway write that story. But there it was, 1976, The Amazing Spider Car. 
Although I think my favorite of the accessories and vehicles and stuff they made have did you ever see or did you you know when looking at this uh researching for this episode anything about the mangler Dan Oh the lime green mangler Yes it, it basically was like this vehicle that looked like a an alligator head the cover of the box shows like Spider-Man punching the green goblin into it and then like green goblin getting like flattened like in a roller coming out the other side of it i'm like wow spider-man's gone dark with Migo here i mean like like green goblin's gotta be dead right i mean like whoa it'd only be better if he came out the other end as a fruit pie like that <laughs> that's the solution there <laughs> a bloody fruit pie like the hulk or, uh... <laughs> they also in 1979 produced a 12 inch web spinning spider-man figure which makes its own web fluid that can be shot from spider-man's hands uh so here's a commercial for for that this is web spinning spider-man with flyaway action pack assembly required Load the web-spinning fluid and squeeze. Web-spinning Spider-Man. Small webs, big webs. Spider-Man webs are catching webs. Webs around fingers. Webs now, since you weren't able to see that commercial if you weren't watching on YouTube, that commercial showcases kids with this like web-like formula all over their hands and all over <laughs> the furniture. I can only imagine how much of a nightmare this must have been because it looks like convincingly web-like. It's like, you know, like fill out your own cobwebs in your house kind of stuff. Showing that, again, that Spider-Man was indeed an international phenomenon. Uh, in 1978, there was the, the if I'm saying this toy company wrong, I apologize, the Poppy 11-inch Spider-Man figure, which was basically, it was, how, how do you say Japanese Spider-Man, Dan? It's Spider-Man or? Spider-Man. Spider-Man, I'm so bad. But yeah, so this was this was based on the Japanese Spider-Man show. I mean, I do think there was a, a, a Leopold figure too, for what it's worth. Yeah, Leopardon had his own like multiple different figures throughout the years. You know, that show was a big hit in Japan. Like, you know, it also came out on like VHS and 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 DVD like as soon as those formats were available. Like, we think of Spider-Man as an American phenomenon, but this very different take on Spider-Man was a phenomenon on the other side of the planet and there were toys obviously associated with it. Kind of moving on from those, the, the Mego line, what, what's, what's the next big toy we want to hit upon here? So, you know, there was a, another spider mobile because like clearly that was the thing to do. This thing called the Spider-Man buggy in, in 1974, this company called Akraz Hamway international, which sounds like a great toy company. <laughs> They released the Ahi official Spider-Man buggy. It was like this friction-powered car that they recommended for children over the age of five. But like that would be successful enough that they also released a remote-controlled version of the buggy, a remote-controlled motorcycle, which, you know, if you've seen Spider-Verse, that motorcycle in there is modeled after this kind of toy. They also released a spider copter, a super gyro cycle, and a zoom cycle. So Spider-Man... You know, this is like volume four of Spider-Man kind of stuff that we're getting here. You know, after we get past some of those vehicles, I think another big kind of landmark toy figurine from this era was from Remco, which again, like these these toy companies, like, you know, I'm I'm half expecting one of these to be like the Spider-Man bag of broken glass, right? Like from the <laughs> uh from Remco. No, these are the energized figures. So these this was these are probably part and parcel with Mego is like 
the big deal figures from the 70s, right? Like, for the most part? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, we have a commercial for this action figure we'll play right here. It's Energized Spider-Man, battery not included. Attach the spider clamp, flip the switch, and the motorized web climber starts him climbing, keeps him climbing. Energized Spider-Man, the spider web trap. So, Mark, for the people who couldn't see this at home, describe this thing to me. This figure is 12 inches high. It's it's all plastic. There's like no articulation whatsoever. But the draw of these figures was they came with all these gadgets. So they were uh, Spider-Man, for example. He ran on C batteries, and he had a spider clamp, a web that he would shoot out, and a spider beam flashlight. So like this was like a total interactive toy where like you could just pick this thing up and press a button on the back and he would blind your neighbor but don't think of it like a spider belt beam right like this was like a flashlight he just held in his hand it's kind of lame to be honest yeah well yes but i mean but it was a toy with a flashlight dan i mean come on this is 1978 like we're not you know we're not in mcfarland toy land yet okay (laughs) yeah and they would also produce a spider copter accessory which like i think was powered by the battery inside of spider-man when you placed him in it it would like cause the blades to spin so you could torment your little sister and uh, they also released a green goblin energized figure also with a flashlight and a cutter purse and an energy belt clearly the green goblin needs a cutter purse now you you found some fun advertisements about the spider copter what what were your impressions of those Dan? well they're a lot of fun you know like i mean it was a giant thing this spider copter like i mean spider-man's 12 inches tall so imagine how big this thing is like you got to be like a linebacker of a kid to carry this thing but what i liked is that it like suggested chasing down villains and the one that it used was the red dragon and no, this isn't the serial killer from like the Hannibal Lecter series. It, it's the white dragon, but they just called him the red dragon for some reason. But it looks just like the white dragon. What's the connection to Spider-Verse with that, Dan? In the movie Spider-Verse, if you look at some of the uh, like comics that are laying around like Miles and, and his roommate Genki's like, apartment, uh, there's a bunch of like Imagine That comics, which is like that universe's version of What If comics. And on the back of one of the ones that Genki is reading, you can see an ad for the Remco energized figure, whoever it was, whether it was Yuki or or somebody else on the team knew about this energized figure and decided to put it in the movie. So there you go, Remco. There's your free ad dollars at work. We move from toys to records, Dan. That's right. Spider-Man was like quite the music-making machine in the 1970s. I like, where do we even start with this? Besides maybe some awesome Spider-Man prog rock. So, Mark, I'm really excited to talk about these because I think they're actually really great. Like, I I definitely spent the past week listening to these and having a blast with them. Not only are they like kind of like music in the vein of Spider-Man, as you may have just heard, but like they all of them kind of tell a story, whether it be the origin or something else. And I think the best place to start explaining this is with the very first one, which was this thing called The Amazing Spider-Man, a rock comic which is like an interesting idea. And um, it's this story called From Beyond the Grave. 
and was released in 1972 by Marvel and Buddha Records as a vinyl and an, an eight-track tape. This thing is great. I mean, it's just a lot of fun. That's good music, I think. Like, legitimately, like, I don't think you have to make a caveat here. The music is a lot of fun. The album artwork was like, it was all like John Romita work, which is like awesome, right? And then apparently what, like when when they were advertising or marketing this this record, they actually had like a Spider-Man costume actor appearing at press events, right? Yeah, right. Of course. You know, this is all before the Electric Company debut. So like that was like kind of a big deal. And like John Romita even did artwork for the inside of the album. Like there was a booklet that came with it that like basically told the story of the album with John Romita artwork that he specially made for this. So like, if you're one of those people that wants to have all of John Romita Spider-Man, like, you know, go and seek this out. And then it's pretty inexpensive if you find it online because they, they reprinted it again in 1988 as like a vinyl picture disc and as a CD. So you can really find this thing if you, are looking for it. It was written by this guy, Steve Lemberg and performed by quote unquote, the web spinners. Yeah, definitely an awesome group of musicians. Sadly, actually today it's interesting. The vocals featured on the album, you know, there's this whole story. It's not just music. It's like this, like a uh, radio drama that involves like a kingpin and, you know, this kind of nightmare scenario for Spider-Man where he has to like, Stop Kingpin to save Aunt May. You know that old one. But the the voice of it's done by Rene uh, Aubert-Genois. He was from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, I think, and a number of other places. But he was the second ever person to do the vocals for Peter Parker officially, right? I mean, there's like the 60s cartoon. But actually today he passed away as we're recording this. Kind of a, a strange thing to be talking about. The kind of weird coincidence. Oh, wow. I, I, that's, that, is, that is pretty wild. One of the other interesting things about this, and Mark, you and I have talked about this like personally, and I don't know if we've talked about it on the show, which is like, at what point did the kind of Uncle Ben with great power must also come great responsibility get attributed to Uncle Ben? And as far as my research shows, I think it was this rock album that really did it because here Spider-Man repeats the with great power must also come great responsibility, but he attributes it as something that his uncle Ben told him when he was young. And here's a clip of him saying it. What was it? Uncle Ben used to tell me. I remember he used to say, Petey, never forget the stronger the man, the heavier the load with great power comes great responsibility. I can't quit. Sane, insane, loved, hated, it doesn't matter. A man might quit, but Spider-Man is more than a man. I'm a superhero. I must fight on, no matter the personal sacrifice, because that's what being a superhero is all about. So this is like 1972, you know, like nine years after Spider-Man's like real big debut. Can you think of something before this that really established that? Certainly not before. I mean, you know, I know Oldsmith obviously made it pretty huge in, in the in the late nineties and I think there might have been like that Marv Wolfman, like was it issue like one eighty one or something that kind of retells the origin, which might have insinuated that that came from Ben. But again, that all is post this record. So that's pretty crazy. Yeah. So just a kind of a cool note there on this album. So Mark, we got another album to talk about that I happen to really like too. Tell us about this one. So this is Rock Reflections of a Superhero. It's a rock concept album that 
was produced in 1975 by Lifesong Records. And I think what really kind of sells this whole thing for me was it's actually all told from Peter Parker, Spider-Man's perspective. And, and apparently, like, the songs are even credited, like, the performances are credited as being, like, Spider-Man, like, the Fantastic Four plays backup, apparently, according to this record. Like, it's like, they, they, they really went all in on this concept. Yeah, if you look at the back <laughs> of the record, it has, like, John Romita Sr. drawings of, like, Spider-Man singing in a microphone and all the different Marvel characters providing different musical instrumentation in the background. It's really quite funny. It runs the gamut in terms of musical styles like like they kind of at one point make it sound like it's like prog rock but it's 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 not it's you know there's kind of like some more up-tempo kind of jaunty stuff and then there's some saxophone stuff from david sanborn who's like you know very famous jazz saxophonist uh doing doing his work on a rock album with spider-man on it go figure yeah and you can really spot this one by its cover like i love this cover it's like spider-man or Peter Parker, rather, in his like bedroom, looking very forlorn with like a mirror reflection of Spider-Man in his, like a standing full-length mirror, which I mean goes back to the Rock Reflections title, but like I think it's a really like cool cover. Yeah, so John Romita, you know, senior involved in that, but then Stan Lee was also involved in this too. He provided spoken material between the music tracks, where he also again repeats this with "Great power must also come great responsibility." phrase but what's cool about it is like he kind of explains the songs before you get into them so like there might be a song about like Gwendolyn like there is a song called Gwendolyn all about Gwen Stacy and you know it kind of he kind of explains Spider-Man's relationship to Gwen and how important it was for them and and I think that's really neat that he kind of used this as a kind of jumping on point for people some other song titles which I thought were pretty great so we got Peter Stays and Spider-Man Goes no one's got a crush on Peter. So sad. Square Boy, New Points of View, Dr. Octopus. Actually, this, the album opens with this song, High Wire, which is kind of like this bluesy, like, day in the life of Spider-Man song. And then Count on Me, which is like this very kind of schmaltzy, sappy, like, prog rock song. I mean, like, it almost kind of makes me think like it's like the doobie brothers or something it's it's really kind of like wow that's that's a spider-man song from the 70s like there you go on brand i guess so that's a really awesome album i I hope you go and check out some of the stuff we're we're talking about but then in the mid 70s there were a bunch of other albums released by this uh, company called power records mark why don't you tell us about these albums so these were um, vinyl 45 records and it wasn't just spider-man it was like um all uh, a bunch of marvel characters and in some instances they actually came package with a comic book to read along with so like they were basically like comic books on record a lot of these were original stories that were made but there there was one big exception which was the mark of the man wolf which was basically just a retelling of amazing spider-man number 124 by jerry conway and gil kane which is like the first appearance as john jameson as the man wolf so that's pretty cool they were like we have to tell the man wolf story if there's one essential spider-man story we have to tell it's that What else would you tell if you were going to tell a Spider-Man story on record, Dan? Power Records presents The Mark of the Man-Wolf. The amazing Spider-Man has many friends, but Jonah Jameson, publisher of the powerful Daily Bugle, isn't one of them. What is this, Robertson? Be kind to criminals, day. Now, Jonah, all I said was we'd better be sure about our facts before we publicly condemn Spider-Man. 
If it turns out he's in so that first one, actually, the Mark of the Man Wolf, is the first one that had Spider-Man in it called The Amazing Spider-Man. That was just the title. But it had another story on it called Invasion of the Dragon Men. So, you know, if, if you're so interested, you can uh, go check that out. But it's cool. I mean, it was like encouraging kids to read comics while they were listening. And like for me, it's like any chance you can get to bring kids into comics is a good one. And then uh, 1975, they released Spider-Man and Friends, which was guest starring the Fantastic Four, the Hulk, Cap- Captain America, and the Hawk. Do you think they meant the Falcon? Or- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. So next up, we want to talk about like, you know, I don't know if this counts as like merchandise or whatever, but I mean, I think it's fair to discuss, you know, Spider-Man novels was like a new thing at this time. Now, of course, right. Spider-Man is a comic book and it's been literature for a long time, but these were like something a little bit different. Last season, we mentioned like some of the pocketbooks, which were basically just reprints of Amazing Spider-Man. But I guess what these were like. More original stories for the most part, right? Yeah, so Simon & Schuster published this one called Mayhem in Manhattan. And actually, it's written by Len Wein and Marv Wolfman in 1978 as a pocketbook. So, like, you know, foretelling future Spider-Man writers to come, which is kind of interesting. Like, this is where they kind of got their start. A couple other entries are Crime Campaign and Murder Moon, which also includes the Hulk. And those are by uh, Paul Kuppenberg, who would also go on to write some Spider-Man in comic book form, if memory serves. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. And around this time was also the first time that Marvel would try out doing trade releases of their comics. So the first major one that they did was called Stan Lee's Origins of Marvel Comics. And it was released in 1974 with a painted John Romita cover. And uh, I mean, if you've ever seen this thing, Mark, like this might be one of the best reprints of those comics ever. I mean, they're very high quality reprints of these things like they took the original like presses and just fired them back up again for this book it's beautiful and it included stuff like amazing fantasy 15 and weirdly amazing spider-man number 72 which is the rocked by the shocker storyline you know like i guess that was the one to include in this you know, if you wanted to get a Stone Tablet Saga episode in there, I guess. <laughs> they would also eventually release a book called The Amazing Spider-Man, which seems to be the title for everything these days. That was in 1979, and that reproduced six different issues, including MJ's first appearance and the entire Green Goblin drug abuse trilogy, which, you know, that's a pretty good book. And, you know, this is just kind of like making things like this. Like, Shyman and Schuster had a very different marketplace than the comics you know did back then so like this is just another way for like people to kind of get caught up on the history of the character and and encounter him in different media than they're used to well this is not necessarily a spider-man specific piece of merchandise but certainly one that he was a part of and had a major impact on the industry for years to come which was the how to draw comics the marvel way by stanley and uh john Buscema. and we've talked to people and have read interviews with, with a bunch of artists i mean this was like the the holy bible for a lot of up-and-coming comic book artists from this era wouldn't you say absolutely i mean not to put myself in that that lineup but like that's one of the first things i bought when i was interested in becoming an artist as a kid like When I was a kid, all I wanted to be was a comic book artist. And, you know, I got pretty good, but a lot of it was thanks to like kind of this book. It's so well laid out in this book about how you can can conceive of drawing things, not just by like tracing or drawing outlines like kids do. Like this was a high concept book, but made for kids. And 
I think really was the first of its kind in that kind of like publishing medium, you know, like now we think about like Scott McCloud's like book on understanding comics where it's like a comic that explains how comics work. But this was really like a comic kind of thing that explained how to draw comics. And I I think it's remarkable in, in that way. It was ahead of its time. Why don't we get into like the hodgepodge of things here, Dan? Because I mean, there's really so much. I think one of my favorite items that kind of appears a lot on when you look at lists from like toys from the 70s is there was a Spider-Man webmaker set from 1977, which like similar to the uh, Mego figure, but this was this was all strictly based on like making a web shooter for yourself. Like it was like this little plastic shooter that came with some formula that you would put into it and would shoot web substance so yet again another dirty living room thanks to the merry marvel toy makers right (laughs) just like spider-man you too can mix chemicals in your mother's kitchen this other item which is something that i've i've always kind of been on the lookout for when we go to cons and i've never really seen it dan but this is the marvel world adventure playset which i i don't know if you know, for people who've who've watched the uh, comic book men show on AMC back when that was on, like they actually did an episode based on this toy. Like it was like one of the owners of the shop there, Walt was like, this was like his favorite thing. And someone like sold it to him. And like, he like was like willing to pay like an infinite amount of money for it because of the nostalgia factor. This was like this cardboard cutout playset with like little wasn't really figurines it was just like pictures of different marvel characters like 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 almost like like candyland figures if you will including spider-man lizard doc ock craven green goblin you know a bunch of them this was also the first marvel item to feature a cardboard cutout of the daily bugle which is kind of cool but like this was like an adventure play set that you would take these little cardboard placards and i guess have adventures with them but it, but it really looks cool. Like the art of it is like the art that's on these little cardboard pieces is really kind of sharp, I think. That's really cool. Uh, something that I wish I knew existed when I was a kid is this amazing Spider-Man camera from 1978, which was a functional film camera that was just all covered in Spider-Man logos and colors. I mean, heck, I, I would probably use that today if I could get my hands on one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, something that would be really hard to get your hands on were uh, this 1977 series of Spider Slurpees. They did this whole like whole Marvel promotional for three years at 7-Eleven uh, where they had 49 different Marvel cups and you know four of which of these were Spider-Man. There was also a Spider-Man 7-Eleven drinking glass. And, you know, for three years, these were on like every Slurpee cup you could get at 7-Eleven, which is like a huge promotion for Marvel. But like they're hard to find now because, you know, those plastics like you run to the dishwasher a few times, the image starts coming off. So like if you have one of these, don't touch it because, you know, like they just, you know, they don't hold up terribly long. You know, that plastic starts to go away. But uh, yeah, spider Slurpees was a collectible thing at the time. Other items, there were school supplies by Mead, Tops superhero bubblegum stickers, fun, a fun stuff web shooter. Hudson made Spider-Man vitamins in 1975. There are puzzles and posters. Like, what else, Dan? There's so much. One of my favorites is the talking Viewmaster. You know those old Viewmaster things? Like, the, there was a Spider-Man, one of those. There was the pinball machine that got introduced from Castle. 
Spider-Man and the Hulk were on a lot of products together during this time because Spider-Man made an appearance on the Incredible Hulk show and so they were kind of promote that. So no better way to promote that than with Spider-Man and the Hulk toilet paper. There's also a Spider-Man and the Hulk medical kit by Durham. Like kids, don't try this at home. Like don't get your Spider-Man and the Hulk medical kit out if you're going to actually solve anything. Milton Bradley made a board game, Amazing Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. I did not know that. I would like to, as a board game enthusiast, I need to find that, Dan. I believe it has even, like, Jack Kirby art on the cover of it. That's pretty awesome. What's an Amazing Spider-Man freesicle, Dan? It's just, you know, like, popsicles. that They would come, give you these molds that you could, like, pour liquid in and, and come out with, like, Spider-Man freesicles is, is what they called them. In the realm of candy, there was Spider-Man Pez that came out. There was a Spider-Man train set because, of course, Spider-Man Underoos, which, like, that goes, like, you know, part and parcel with Spider-Man. There was a 1978 Empire Pedal Spider-Man quote-unquote motorcycle, which was just, like, a bicycle that they said was a motorcycle because kids want to believe that they can operate heavy machinery of that type. Uh, there's a bath center and super soaper spy- that was Spider-Man themed because how else would you make bath time fun except by having something that shoots so- uh, soap suds at you, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's just a giant head that has soap in it. Perfect. Corgi's spider buggy and green goblin. What's that, Dan? I, I-, I have no idea what that's referring to. It's like this toy where Spider-Man is driving like a buggy that's like a truck, like the haunted hayride, but with Spider-Man. And like there's a Green Goblin figure that comes with it that I guess can chase after the buggy. It's neat. And Corgi was this toy company back in the day. And they also got, you know, involved with making a Spider-Man car and boat with trailer. So, uh, you know, Spider-Man has all of your off-roading needs. That sounds awesome. Well, Dan... That was an exhaustive and potentially expensive romp down memory lane. But needless to say, Spider-Man was everywhere, right? Like, let's get me that board game and a couple of Amigo figures, right? Because it's almost Christmas time. So we got to buy me something, right? I, I have like heartedly sent like a list of some of these items to family members of mine who always end up buying me like spider-man coffee makers and things that i don't want so i kind of want I, i'm going to send them this and be like here's some more, a little more expensive stuff that i actually do want that and yes i am still an adult this is a responsible thing faster because you know it's fun and collectible then <laughs> <laughs> that's the key right i don't want to play with dolls i just want to have collectibles very well then dan so why don't why don't we bring it home Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for our 12th episode of our third season, all the all new Amazing Spider Talk. So, Dan, what's coming up next for our show? Yeah, well, uh, we hope that everyone enjoyed our episode all about Matt Singer's new Spider-Man book. Of course, Mark, everybody should purchase your book as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's still out there. 100 Things and uh, Spider-Man fans should know and do before they die. I almost forgot the name of my own book, Dan. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, then after that, we'll be moving on to our final episode of season three. It's finally here, just in time for the end of the year, as Mark and I discuss the beginnings of the spectacular Spider-Man comic series, 
with some special guests to help us out. Also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man number 36. There's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than to join us for our exciting coverage of the Nick Spencer run. Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, b-book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork this season from Barry Kitson. Also, be sure to check out our sister show, The Untold Talks of Spider-Man. Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider Slack community for you to join. Just check out this episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community. And as always, a special thank you to Rick Coast, our amazing, spectacular, adjectiveless web of editor who cut together this very episode. Rick, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and where we can find your awesome podcasting work on the Internet? Thanks, Dan. You can find all of my work at modernaudiodrama.com as well as rickcoast.com. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Rick Coast. And as far as this episode goes, while editing it and listening to it, I think I had almost all of the toys and power records and everything else on this episode. I wish I had saved them all. Anyhow, thanks, Dan. Back to you. Awesome. Thanks again, Rick. Mark, where can we find you online this week? Well, you already allowed me to plug my book, so I, I will spare people the details of that. But you can then find me elsewhere on Twitter at ChasingASMblog. What about you, Dan? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk, talking about Spider-Man. But I'm also promoting my TV guide write-ups of The Mandalorian, the new Star Wars show, where every week I dive into recapping that show and making a bunch of enemies on the internet because I don't like it as much as everybody else does. And I feel like I'm taking crazy pills, but that's okay because I still have fun writing these pieces, which I think are quite funny. Dan, is it the Mandasnorian for you? It is. It is, Mark. Very <laughs> much it is. I don't want to make enemies here on this show. And again, we're all just people with our own opinions and that's okay. <laughs> and also, we also want to be sure to remember what, Mark? Yes, Dan. Well, whether you're writing reviews on TV Guide or giving podcasts about superheroes, it's always good to remember with great podcasts must also come the all new Amazing Spider Talk. Global Dominion, Mark. Child's hands. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Let's get it on, webhead. <laughs> <laughs>